0: Good morning church, it is good to be with you today as we worship the Lord, as we prepare for the time when we celebrate all around the world in the church, the arrival of the Christ child, and we don't just celebrate his arrival, we celebrate his arrival so that he could become the one who would take away the sins of the world, and that is the one whom we worship, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was before and is and is to come, who is the one through whom, and for whom, and by whom all things were created. And today we're going to look in the Word of God again, and we're going to see how we are in good company with many others that have gone before us, those listed in the genealogy even of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And today we're going to hit one that's actually a story you're probably pretty familiar with, even if you've not been in church all your life. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel Second Samuel chapter eleven. We're going to cover a wide berth of scripture, it's chapter eleven and twelve of Second Samuel. This is the story that you're aware of with David, uh, King David, and his failures with Bathsheba against one of his friends. So let me pray for us before we do anything further, and let us begin our time saturated, hopefully, in the Holy Spirit as we then dive into the Word this morning. Father, we need you. Period, Lord. We need you. I pray and ask this morning that you would fill our hearts with your love for your Son, that we'd be overwhelmed with love, and gratitude, and honor at the thought of being called part of your family because of your son's self-sacrificing for us on the cross. We celebrate his coming in this season, and we look forward to his coming again. Lord, you have gifted us greatly with your son. Help us this season, prepare room for him in our homes, in the workplace, in our hearts. Lord, as we look upon the scriptures, your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to it, that you would illumine our minds to understand it, and that you would change us accordingly, that we might look more like your son Jesus when we leave. And we ask all of that in the blessed, beautiful, and precious name of your son Jesus. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read large chunks of Scripture together with you, so just read along with me in your own Bibles. Uh, If you can't find it, you're not sure where that is, let me just tell you, there's nothing shameful about going back to the index and looking in the very beginning the table of contents and learning where that is. It's not often that we jump around, but we're going to be every week during this series in different places. And so we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. I'm only going to skip sections for the sake of time. Your duty, your job is to go back and make sure that what I say is actually from the scriptures. And so your job is to go back and read the story in its entirety and make sure that it is true. And if so, we have one of two things. You've heard me say this before if you've been here any length of time. You have one of two things you can do. One, you can obey, which is the will of the Lord for you. It's why you're here this morning, by his providence, by his grace. And two, you could choose to disobey. And that comes with heavy repercussions. So let us endeavor to see the truth and to live accordingly this morning. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? By the way, give a little parenthetical statement. This is where David should have keyed in quickly that he was... Already, was he wrong in looking and gazing upon this woman, as she probably had no idea from his perspective, he could see all of Jerusalem, but now that he heard it was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he would have remembered that this is one of the few men who were with him when he was running for his life from Saul, who was trying to kill him. One of the few in his company that helped to take care of him and helped to sustain him until the Lord would take his anointing and place him in the throne. And so this is someone he knew very well, a close friend, someone that he had seen serve him relentlessly. Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and they did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And this is exactly, pause out of that, let me just cover a lot of ground quickly. It's exactly what Joab did. And in the midst of that, not only Uriah was killed, but other soldiers, some of his best soldiers were killed simply to cover up David's adultery, adultery at best, maybe even his sexual abuse of a woman under his power. This is David's response. He brings him home to try to get him to have time with his wife so that he would think that child would be his. And then when it doesn't work because he doesn't feel like he's worthy since his countrymen, his warriors are out in the field and can't do that, David tries to get him drunk so that he'll go home. And he still doesn't do that. He's a man of honor. And so David sends him out and has him killed along with others. We pick it up. In verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, chapter 12, verse 1. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And notice, by the way, before you go further, that this is a normal thing that would happen to David. People would come before him as the king, as the final judge and arbiter of any issues. And they would prepare their case and lay it out for him and ask David to pronounce judgment. And the king would do so. That's how Nathan has approached David. As a prophet sent by God who knows what's going on and knows what's happened because God has given him clarity and discernment on this but instead what he does is not walk in and just shake a finger at the king. He walks in and he begins to tell a story that actually is not just about what he's saying, but it's about David. And Listen to David's response, chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. By the way, It was normal, according to the law, to restore it fourfold for stealing like that, but it was not normal to kill someone for that breaking of the law. David says he should die for doing this. And David said to David in verse 7, you are the man Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have de- despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Even though he just declared that's what should happen to himself. He says, you shall not die. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This story brings up a lot of different thoughts for a lot of different people. And this story shows a lot of things that we know are wrong in fact, some might think that the Bible is filled with people who are supposed to do always right, and that the Bible is about doing right, and God will bless you. And there is some truth to the fact that if you do right and you're in Christ, you will be blessed. But the real reality is, is that the people of the Word of God, people in the Word of God, except for Jesus, are broken people who do broken and sometimes stupid things. That doesn't mean they're not believers. It means they make mistakes because they are sinners. And I want you to understand something very, very big and true for all of us before we draw condemnation in our hearts against David. That this same power of sin that took a man who was declared to be a man whose heart was after God, who had a heart for God, whose God loved him so much, is a man that fell into sin so quickly and easily because sin is that powerful in our lives. And let me say this, the power of that sin, that same power, is within us all as we are all sinners. We're in a society and in a culture where even in churches, it is communicated in such a way that it seems like sin is bad, but we're not bad. That sin is wrong, but we're not bad people. Now I'm here to tell you that in light of others you may know you may morally all of us are sinners in need of God's saving grace and none of us of our own account can ever do anything to put ourselves in a good place with God. And all of us are one step away, one bad decision away from falling into the same trap as David. Not necessarily the adultery or the abuse not necessarily the murder, but in some sinful way to fall into a trap, to sin against a holy God who deserves all of our worship at all times, and there we fall short of that glory of God when we sin. Sin is powerful. We cannot think that we alone in our own selves can overcome our sinfulness. You can't just try harder I don't know about you, but that's how I grew up. I grew up hearing the gospel was for people to come to faith and to repent the first time and become a believer, and then that we were to just strive hard to walk holy. And we do strive hard to walk holy, but never can that be divorced from our total, complete, impassioned, total, given over surrender to the grace of God because of His mercy upon us. That is what carries us through, not us picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's why Paul never gets away from the gospel. That's why Jesus always articulates dependence on the Father. That's why he says you must die to self daily and pick up his cross and follow him. It is about complete resting upon the grace of God and not in our own ability. And the moment we begin to believe that we have accomplished the goal, the moment we begin to believe that we are doing it, is the moment that we take away from God's glory and the moment that we become placed in the scariest place we could possibly be when we believe that we could not sin like David. You see here, one preacher, Timothy Keller, talks about sin like what happened with David. It's just a little acorn. He calls it a seed. And he gives this illustration talking about how This little acorn, as a child, it was hard for him to recognize and believe that that little acorn could become the giant oak tree that he saw in his yard. I don't know about you, but I don't oftentimes think about how quickly that seed can grow into a magnificent, horrible oak of sin in my heart. We must take constant care, like John Owen encourages us, the Puritan When he says, you best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Not in your own power, in the grace of God by his Holy Spirit. And when we sin, no matter what that sin is, we are literally doing what's talked about in chapter 12, verse 9. We are despising the word of the Lord and doing evil in his sight. Every time we sin, it is a sin of unbelief at the precipice. Because we believe in that moment that something is more valuable than our Savior, or we would not reach for it. We would not endure it. None of us are better than David. And our only hope is never found in the power of our will. Our only hope is always and only found in the grace of our great God. Thankfully, God's grace is greater than our sin. We sing about it, amen. It is greater than all our sin. And we see that in this story, that God's grace shows up in a multitude of ways, just like it does in our own lives, but oftentimes we don't recognize it as God gives it to us. Here, almost the first place we see this grace is when it comes in the form of a godly friend like Nathan, who's willing to risk his own life to come before the king to tell the king that he has messed up and he needs to repent. So Nathan comes in grace and in love and he confronts his friend and God's grace is shown in that confrontation. It may not feel like it, brothers and sisters, but when a friend confronts us, it is so easy for us to uh, escape it by making all kinds of excuses. But when a friend comes to us kindness and in grace and confronts us, we should always give ear to it, for we may be in sin or in grave error, and we might need to change or repent. We should always take it and pray over it before we dismiss anything. God's grace not only comes in the confronting of the sin, but God's grace comes even in the loving discipline of a father. It's hard to imagine how we can find grace in a moment where God sends a an affliction against a child. I and mean, that's the words of the scriptures. In verse 15, Nathan went to his house, chapter 12, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. His providential leading that child to, I can only imagine, go to be with him, is a part of the consequences of David's sin. But he does not take. David's life. He does not punish him eternally. There's a difference between the consequences of our sin and the punishment of God. There's consequences to our sin. We have to endure those consequences even in this place. But make sure you understand it is not the punishment of God upon David, because the punishment of God was paid for by David's future Messiah, the greater David, who is Jesus. And so he endured all the punishment for David's sin on the cross. He does not have to endure wrath for it. He doesn't get punished. And you, likewise, when you make mistakes, when you sin, you may receive consequences to your sin that are there as a part of what you have chosen to do in your unbelief. But it is not God punishing you if you're in Christ because Jesus took every bit of your punishment on the cross. Somehow, shape or form, whatever you endure as consequences are always meant to drive you face to face with God. They're always meant to drive you to finding hope in the Lord. It's always meant to drive you. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, he says, all those things we go through are meant to bring us to a good place with God, to make us more into the image of Christ. So don't think in this karma-type way that is not biblical or definitely not gospel. You don't get punished for your sins if Jesus took your punishment, but well, you may have to live out the consequences of your sin. His grace is greater than that. He comes in the loving discipline of a father, and his grace leads to our confession and repentance. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. Listen to these words. David said to Nathan, there's no, but I didn't mean to. There's no, hey, but you don't understand. There's no, hey, I... I I, I'm just a man. I make mistakes. Hey, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. You want to see a further delving into this? Go read Psalm 51. That's part of your homework. Write that down Psalm 51. Most grand and complete example of biblical repentance, confession, and relief. From that, in Scripture, it's David's prayer in this moment. I have sinned against the Lord. Last night, I was not very kind to my family. It was uh, late in the evening. I was trying to ramp everybody up to get them in bed. You know what I mean? It's crazy chaos time. I'm like them. I don't like to go to bed either. But I wasn't gentle. I wasn't loving like my father is towards me. I was gruff and rough and abrupt. And my wife even said some things to me to try to encourage me to have the light bulb come on and see it. And I responded not gently with her. And although I have repented to her and will repent to my children later, ultimately and foremost, I have sinned against the Lord. You, every time you sin, have sinned against the Lord, and it grieves Him. And every time, every time, it's the exact same thing that I said earlier when I said it's despising the word of the Lord when we do evil in His sight. We should be driven to our knees, confessing before the Lord and then confessing to those for whom we have done wrong. It doesn't talk about it here, but I must believe that in his repentance that he confessed all things to Bathsheba that he did to Uriah if she did not already know. Because he's repentant, and that's what you do. You confess when you repent. Notice this too. There's always those consequences for our sins, but God's grace is greater. Notice this. David immediately returns to the Lord. Look at verse 15 in chapter 12. Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So what did David do? Went face to face with the Lord. Cried out for mercy for his child. Face to face with him. Seven days and seven nights, repentant in a posture of humility before the Lord, begging, going without to show his desire completely to be before the Lord. Seven days, the child dies. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and we did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Listen to this. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. How can we look upon a man like David and think how horrible he is when his response is way better than mine could ever be in those moments? We are as much sinners and no greater than David. The only one greater, Jesus. All of us broken, capable of anything at any moment. One of my favorite preachers when I was coming up as a new, newborn-again Christian was Paul Washer. And part of that reason was because unlike some people, okay, I'm not saying good or bad, I like to be kicked in the teeth and in the stomach when I listen to a sermon. I like to feel the pain of where I need to repent. And Paul Washer was really laying it on me. The Holy Spirit really was through Paul Washer as I listened to the sermons. But he would often say things like, you are no different than hitler except by god's grace the same sin resides in you as resides in him the same sinful condition is ours across the board but by god's grace he's not allowed you to go that far yet so let us depend on the lord david here brought to confession and repentance goes and lays before the lord And he begs for his child. And when that does not happen, what's his response? It's not, I can't believe it. It's not, why would you not do this for me? He understands his consequences are his own doing. He goes and worships the Lord. I don't know if I could do it, but by the power of the same Holy Spirit, I guess we could. Hopefully, we never have to know. But he took responsibility for his sins, he trusted the Lord. And he acts out this gracious, God-fearing man he's supposed to be as he goes even further. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife. You didn't see that earlier. When he killed Uriah, you didn't see him going and comforting Bathsheba. You didn't see that before the repentance happened. But now he goes and comforts his wife. And he, by God's favor, returning back to David, we see something pretty significant. I want you to hear this hopeful moment today. It's shown throughout the rest of Scripture. Even though David, in his sin, pressed into his sinfulness and the power of sin, led him into grave error of, of at minimum adultery, if not abuse, and murder of one of his friends, that even though that's what his sin led him into, God brought favor. To this new marriage after repentance happened. You see that, look at verses 24 and 25. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And we see that even though it was really not cool the rest of the way out for David, lots of trouble based off of his actions here, the consequences, we see that God still favored David and still loved David. And even in Acts 13, we see that he was a man after God's own heart, proclaimed in the New Testament, after all this has already happened. That's God, the Holy Spirit, saying through Luke, as he writes the Acts of the Apostles, saying that this David, where everybody knows all these things already, was still a man after God's own heart, and that God blessed him, and he and his wife, although she's titled the wife of Uriah the Hittite, are still in the genealogy of Jesus. That's because no matter what you've done, no matter how you've messed up, God's grace is sufficient to overcome it. God's grace is sufficient to take a big mess up on your part, a big failure on your part, and make something good come out of it, because that's the kind of great God that we serve. How can you describe God's actions here as full of grace? After all, God took the life of David and Bathsheba's son. You see, the death of their own son was part of the consequences of their sin, but recognize this, it was consequences of their actions. It wasn't the punishment he did not receive. David did not receive the just punishment, which is death and condemnation forever because of his sin. He deserved that. This is the true punishment and condemnation we all deserve for our sins, because we are no better or more righteous than David. But God... So loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. For he did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what Christmas is about. That's what this entire life is about for us. Once you see that truth when God has peeled back the scales and opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel, that's all you can see from here forward. Unless we take our eyes off of him and we let that acorn of sin grow into a big problem that leads us away from the Lord. But even then, by God's grace, he will bring us back because no one can take us out of his hand. No one. He loves you too much. His son's blood is worth too much to waste it. And if you become his, he will not let go of you. So turn today and put your hope in the one who gave his life for you. Turn today. Your sin is not too great. It cannot be overcome. In fact, it's already been paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and repent of your sin and believe on him even now. You may say, I've already done that and do it again this morning. For every day is a day of repentance. All of life is repentance for those who hope in Jesus. The consequences for David's sin was the death of his son, but God's grace is still greater for all of us, for all of our sin. We we'll all have to endure some consequences for our sins. and They will not be enjoyable. We will hate them, and that will hopefully help us to hate the sin that we might lean into Jesus even more. Sin is powerful and unrelenting, but God loves us so much that he gave his one and only son to become one of us and to live the life of sinless perfection that we cannot live. And then God gave him up, his only son, to death on our behalf, on the cross of Calvary. And in our place, he stood condemned. The baby... And the manger became the Son Christ on the cross in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God, ushered into his family for grace and by grace, not according to any works of our own, but according to his work on the cross for us. Praise you, Jesus, for you alone deserve the glory. Only you. May our Christmas this year be about you, Lord, for you only deserve the praise God took the life of his only son so that we might be granted forgiveness and acceptance. He'd done nothing wrong. David had sinned greatly. Jesus, perfect, everything exactly the way the Father wanted, and yet he crucified him for our sins. And Jesus willingly endured it and died the death we deserve so that we can be brought into his family and we can be a part of these broken people with broken stories, with a lot of baggage that Jesus carried all the way to the cross. Brothers and sisters, you may think you're outside of the box, that you're not welcome or that you're not accepted, but today, if that's you, you're in good company because none of us can ever do it on our own. And Thankfully, Jesus did it all for us on the cross. So put your hope in him. Father, we need your goodness and your grace even now. We are not. You are enough. We can never be, Father, but your son has already been that for us. And although we know. Although we know that we will never be able to overcome our sin, we know that your son Jesus did exactly that on the cross. This morning, would you make that real and true for everyone in this place, everyone that's hearing or seeing this today or any time in the future. Lord, bring them all, including me, to repentance that we might walk near you face to face every moment. We might enjoy life the way it's intended to be in your presence, unhindered by sin as we fight the sin and the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory and our joy in you. Lord, please bring souls to salvation through your work in us and let us see that and rejoice with you for your glorious kingdom's sake. And Lord, help us this Christmas to be reminded that we walk in good company even in our failures because we can then look to Jesus as our only hope, the one who deserves all the glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. And let me say this to you. We're about to sing a song together, but do not think you must sing. If the Lord puts it on your heart to pray, please pray. This altar is open. Maybe you need to find forgiveness in your heart for someone that's wronged you, that's led to severe, disastrous consequences in your life. Maybe you need to get over bitterness in your own heart. Maybe you need to repent to the Lord today about something. Do not leave this place until you are right with the Lord, and not by your own doing, but by turning back face to face with Him, that He would then be our only hope for real, and not just in word, but in action and in spirit. May you do whatever the Lord leads now in order to be in the place you should be in his presence this morning and I ask that you would do that. Please do not walk away from this moment with him. <laughs>